Good morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Acts chapter 2 this morning. We're going to uh, be kicking off a new series. And this series is a part of our ongoing series where we have been uh, looking into the book of Acts and uh, studying it a lot. And so if you're new around here, we spent the first seven months here of the year uh, studying through Acts chapter 1 and then into Acts chapter 2. And uh, we finally have uh, arrived at probably the, the most famous verses uh, in the book of Acts, uh, at least uh, of the last maybe 10, 20 years, and even beyond that a little bit uh, as well. And you get to this, this point in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where uh, it, it describes what we would know as, it doesn't use that language here, the, the very first church. And I say around here often that firsts are important, that firsts matter. And so looking at first in the scriptures helps us understand what did God do first and then what does he want to do uh, after that from the first. And so what we're going to be doing in this series entitled Now That's Church is looking into Acts chapter 2 and seeing what it teaches us about how the church that Jesus came to plant is supposed to operate. Now as we do that, uh, I think we have to do it through a couple of different lenses. And, and, and here's what I mean by that. Uh, in the book of Acts in general, there is much of the book of Acts that is descriptive in nature. And by descriptive, it's describing events that happened. And when we see descriptions in the book of Acts, we can learn from them and we can be motivated and moved by them, but not necessarily every description is an indication of this is how everything should be done. They're just describing events, right? Uh, and then there are also moments in the scripture and in the book of Acts that are prescriptive in nature. And what those are saying is, uh, this is how it's supposed to be done. It's prescribing something. Do it this way. And in, the, in this particular section of the scriptures, I, I believe we're seeing a combination of both. What we're seeing in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, is the natural outcome of gospel conviction. After there's gospel conviction, it leads to gospel transformation. After gospel transformation, it then leads to church engagement. Uh, let me say it another way. Without gospel uh, conviction, that should precede church commitment. We're, we'll see that here in a couple of minutes. Uh, and and the, the point of that being uh, is that it teaches us much about how somebody enters into the body of Christ and then what that first body of Christ looked like. But there are parts of Acts 2, 42 through 47 uh, that should, on one hand, they should motivate us, they should move us. We should look in and go, wow, that is amazing. And some of us maybe grew up in very ritualistic, or if I could use the word, dead church environments. And you look back at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and you go, oh, that would be awesome to be a part of. And it would be. And, and there's an element of it that should like, wow, that moves me and motivates me. But let me say this too. There's also an element on the other side in Acts 2, 42 through 47 that has actually almost become not uh, so idealistic in nature that it's almost become idolistic, okay? Ideal, I-D-E-A-L, turned into idol, I-D-O-L. And what has happened is that people have looked at Acts 2, 42 through 47, and you hear phrases like, oh, I just want to be a part of an Acts 2 church, and, uh, and I just wish the church was more Acts 2, and well, I'm just looking for an Acts 2 church. 
And people use this phrase and they, uh, and they talk about this and it's almost become an idol or such an impossible ideal that what they do is they use the lack of seeing Acts 2.42 through 47 in its fullness as a reason to step out of the church completely. And it's become almost, again, an idol. And they say, oh, no, well, you know, that church is not Acts 2 enough or something. And, and, and in some regard, okay, we should look at it and go, oh, that moves me, that motivates me. In other regards, we have to see about it, what's contextual, all right, what is descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Uh, on the other hand, we also have to be careful, and you have to be careful of this in every sense, right, is that a few verses of Scripture are helpful in building a doctrine of something in the Bible, but they're probably not a complete doctrine if we have the rest of the Bible that also talks about it. So when it comes to the church, later in 1 Corinthians and other sections of church, Paul is going to prescribe some things and lay out, and we're going to see other pictures of the church throughout the rest of the book. And so we have to take what's in there and what's in Acts 2. We have to kind of overlay them with each other to see what is God trying to do. And what is he really trying to create and really trying to produce? And the way we say that around here is we want to be a part of the church that Jesus came to plant. Like Jesus came to plant a church. I want to be a part of that one, not one that we make up. Because that one is going to be way better. Because he, he's, he's a better leader. He's, he's the head of his church. And so, uh, and so our, our quest here over this Now That's Church series is going to be trying to walk down both of those. How do we look at Acts 2, 42 through 47 and say, man, I want that? And then how do we also look and say, okay, but let's not be so idealistic that we miss how God is moving right now. We miss what he's doing in the context of his church. And how do we even look at some of the other parts of Scripture that help inform that? And so that's what, that's what we're going to be doing. Uh, during this series. And uh, today what I want to do is a, almost as a way of introduction into the series, I want to just pull out a couple of truths that we see uh, in this. Some important questions, like one question is like, who is the church for? That's an important question. Uh, another question would be like, well, how does one get into the church? An important question. Uh, a third one then would be like, what spirit then embodies those who are in a church? And so the not like the Holy Spirit, obviously the Holy Spirit, but like uh, when I say spirit, I mean like the ethos of it, the culture of it, or what is supposed to be underneath all of that. Uh, and so those are the three questions that I want to kind of look at this morning, again, as a way of introduction uh, to, before we even dive into the rest of 2 through 47, so that this can help us as we journey through this together uh, as a church family uh, to have a, have a bit of a foundation. And so uh, really our primary text this morning is going to be Acts 2.41, which says this, so... Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. About 3,000 souls. That's a good day. That's a good day of church, right? We would all hope and dream and pray to be a part of something like that, where 3,000 people, um, you know, they repented and they turned to Christ. But notice this. Uh, there, there was power of the Holy Spirit that moved before this moment. And um, actually, let me take a step back. Uh, as much as people today uh, want to say, oh, I want to be a part of an Acts 2 church, and this became this common language even over the last 10, 20 years, I want to be a part of the Acts 2 church and, and that kind of thing. Um, uh, what people have done, and this is, I have done this as well, and this has happened in every kind of church strategy, whether it's the mega church or the small church or the home church or the whatever church, uh, lots of people have done this. What we do is we go straight to Acts 2.42 through 47 and begin to teach what we see in Acts 2.42 through 47 without fully understanding what preceded that moment. 
And I've done this too, so I'm guilty of this. Uh, and what you do then is you begin to teach the principles of Acts 2, 42 through 47, and you teach people to those principles, right, trying to form something uh, that we saw in Acts chapter 2, but fail to recognize or to remember that what they saw, what we see in Acts 2, 42 through 47 was not because somebody taught them how to be in Acts 2, 42 through 47 church, what, but it was because they were changed by the gospel, received the gift of the Holy Spirit, and then now naturally became something, okay? The difference is this. It's teaching what changes the human heart, not trying to teach these are simply the outcomes that we're desiring. And so why we spent so much time uh, in Acts chapter 1 and, and the beginning parts of Acts chapter 2 is because we wanted to be very certain about those inputs. We would love to see these outputs, but we don't teach the outputs. We teach the input, which is the gospel, Acts 2.41, all right, and everything before that, right? This was all the gospel cutting to their heart, that whole series that we just did. Am I a Christian? I don't know. Has the gospel cut to your heart? Have you received the gift of the Holy Spirit? Yes, 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 yes. Now what? This. And so then they received his word. They, they repented and they believed in the gospel, right? They received his word. Uh, and then later it's going to tell us, and they were added. Now, the first thing this is teaching us is my first point for the morning, okay? This is highly so controversial, so doctrinal. Get this. The church is for believers. Crazy, huh? The church, guess what? The church is for Christians. That's what the church is. In fact, I have a statement that we'll come back to over and over. And you would say, well, that's not that controversial. Well, in our modern world, it needs to at least be clarified. The church is for believers. The church is a group of believers coming together, united by their common salvation, empowered by the common spirit, and motivated to a common purpose. Let me read it again. The church is a group of believers coming together, united by their common salvation, empowered by the common spirit, and motivated to a common purpose. So is the, uh, is the church for seekers? Is the church for unbelievers? Is the church just for anybody? Can anyone just be a part of the church? Well, the answer to that, and I'll look at it in more detail in a second, is no. The church is primarily for believers. It's made up of followers of Christ. Now, the implications of this are very important, and understanding this from the foundation or the beginning dictates how the rest of this plays out. Because when we talk about the church, when we say, now that's church, uh, the premise in the scriptures is this, that it is a group of followers of Christ who have experienced the conversion of the gospel, who are now filled with the Holy Spirit, that are walking together hand in hand. Let me give you some of the implications. One of the implications is, what's the point of the gathering? The point of the gathering for the church, right, for the group of believers, uh, the primary outlet, and so you can look at Sunday morning, what's the primary focus of this gathering? It's for the church family, the followers or the believers of Christ, to get together and to be challenged and equipped and strengthened and encouraged, which means for me on Sunday morning when I get up to preach, I know that my primary outlet is for those of you who are in Christ, now, through the power of the Holy Spirit, and I believe through the effectiveness of the Word of God and the proclamation of the gospel, that the Holy Spirit has this incredible way uh, that in the same sermon, he can reach the unreached, right? He can grow up the reach, and he can still move in those of us who are most mature. There's a power in the gospel, and there's a power in the Holy Spirit in the scriptures in being able to do that. But the primary outlet, right, of a gathering in the church is that believers would be equipped, they would be strengthened, and they would be challenged. We do that. 
when we gather on Sunday morning. And that's my focus. As a pastor, right, uh, I, like I, I said this before, right, that, that Sunday morning is my best opportunity to help all of us collectively move from where we're at to where God is taking us. For, for you, for the gospel to be working its way in you. And Sunday morning is my best chance to like mass discipleship the, the body of Christ and each of every one of you, which is part of what I'm going to be held responsible for someday. Now, uh, the, another implication of the idea that the church is for believers is this, that the operating system that is laid out in the scriptures for how the church is supposed to function operates under the assumption that everyone is in Christ. And so there are parts of reading scripture and there are parts of the way church operates that somebody might look in and they'll go, well, I don't like that. Well, in part, they might not like that because if they're not in Christ, they're not supposed to like it. The scriptures lay out a plan for how the the church should operate under the assumption that any of the people who are in it are saved by Jesus. They've been convicted and transformed by the gospel, and they're now filled with the Holy Spirit. And so there is all of this instruction in the scripture of this is how the church should operate, and this is how you should handle certain things. Let me just give you a couple of examples, right? People, sometimes they look in at the church and they go, well, here's what I don't like about the church. It is so judgmental. So judgmental. Church is so judgmental. I I don't like that. Okay, well, then you have to begin to explore a little bit what that means. Because there's one passage of Scripture where Paul actually tells us, judge one another. Like, it actually says that. And what's he saying in that moment? He's saying that when there is somebody in the context of the church who is caught up in sin, they should want to be told so. Why? Because the uh, 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 understanding, the operating assumption is that that person is in Christ. And who of us, if we're in Christ, would not want to be told that we're in sin? Of course we would. And so somebody looks and they go, well, I don't like it. They, they, they told me I was in sin and they, they told me that I'm sinning. And so I left because they're judgmental. No, that was the job. The assumption was what? Everyone's in Christ. So everyone's believing the scriptures and everyone wants the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Otherwise... Otherwise, why would you be here, right? Why? And so uh, now, there isn't a type of judgment, by the way, that is an inappropriate judgment. And can I tell you what that is? That is when one person takes something that isn't actually written in the scripture as like fact, but is more a matter of the conscience and says, hey, my tradition or my matter of conscience, you have to live underneath it. That's called judgment. And that's not, that's not okay. That can create very toxic, very unhealthy, very religious uh, church environments where one person looks at another person and says, hey, I do it this way, so you have to do it this way. Uh, and that can actually become sinful. And I talked about that last week in Matthew 23. Woe to you. But then there's other parts of Scripture that are very, very clear about what is sinful and what is not sinful. And the church actually has an obligation. And the system is set up that if the church is for believers, then you play out the system that is written, which would include challenging somebody who's in their sin, okay? Now, this doesn't just apply to this one. It applies to other things as well. Like, like how do you pick a leader within the context of the church? Oh, well, we don't need like a worldly leadership book to tell us. All we have to do is we have to go to the scriptures and you read through it and it tells you how to pick your leader. 
How, how do you, uh, you know, what's the aim or the focus of the church? The, the scriptures lay that out uh, for us as well. The equipping and the training of the saints so that the saints would then go and do the work of ministry. And, and so all of these things are laid out. But again, the assumption is that it is believers who are stepping into. And where you see churches begin to go astray is when people who are not believers begin to start influencing how the church is set up and operating. And then their ideas start to play out, and they go, well, I think we should do this. I think we should care more about this. I think we should focus on this area, and those are not the things that the Scriptures talk about because now you have an unbeliever who's coming in, and their perspective is beginning to play out in something that God has set apart to be holy and sanctified for believers. This is important. And so around here, what does this mean for us? It means the things that the Scriptures tell us, this is how you should do them, we just do them that way. Because it's his church. And so we're going to operate the way that he has laid it out. Now, there's a lot of other things that there is freedom in how you begin to operate. Uh, and so in those areas that, uh, that are freedom, then we take the, the universal principles that God has laid out, like be an elder-led church, right? Uh, and, and then we allow the elders or the staff, whoever that authority is passed out to, to make decisions that the scriptures provide freedom in. And so that's how you end up in a place like we're at. But this is important foundational stuff because otherwise things can begin to get perverted, corrupted, and twisted. And so this is the, the first thing. Now, within this, I want to give a little bit of a caveat because um, you've probably heard this phrase or you've seen it on a church board. Church is for everyone, right? And I want to add a little something to the end of it. No, it's not. Now, let me explain this for a second. Some of you are like... We have everyone is invited to experience redemption painted on the wall. Yes, we do. And uh, I'm not saying contradictory things here. And so I want to walk through this for a second. There is this idea right now, oh, church is for everyone. Uh, everyone, uh, come on in, be a part of the church. And uh, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter even what you believe. Uh, it doesn't matter what your doctrine is. None of these things matter. Church is just for everybody. And in that way, if this is what they're saying, that anyone can come and participate and be a member of, I'm using some language here, be uh, like a, 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 an engaged part of the body of Christ, right? And anyone can be that. That idea is absolutely and fundamentally incorrect. The church, the church is for believers, to be into it requires that there be gospel conviction. It is gospel conviction that then sends somebody into, I'll talk about that in a second, that sends somebody into the makeup of the church. This is important in the sense that if you carry this ideal of, oh, the church is just for anybody, and so anyone can come and be a part of the body, Paul will address this later in one of his talks, and he says this, and this is what happens. A little leaven leavens a whole lump. In other words, what happens is if somebody pops in, and they're like, I'm a part of the church body, I'm a part, I'm a, I am in the body of Christ, but, but doctrinally, they're incorrect, or they live in sin, or they're not aligned, uh, and there's been no gospel conviction, then that body begins to be be corrupted, polluted, and perverted. And sadly, we can look across our country right now, and we can see churches, or we can see entire denominations where people have stepped into those who no longer believe the Bible, who no longer operate under gospel or Holy Spirit conviction. And uh, sadly, entire denominations have begun to crumble, right, because they said, well, church is for anyone. And what it's done is it, is, it has destroyed the makeup of the body of Christ by allowing 
poor doctrine by allowing sin, unrepent, unrepentant, unconfessed, um, uh, uh, unworked out sin to pollute the body of Christ. Now, it is not contradictory for us, by the way, though, to say that the church is not just for everyone. The church is for believers, but everyone is invited to experience redemption. So what do we mean by that? What we mean by that is uh, that there is a, a level of participa participation or engagement in the body of Christ that is open to everybody. Why? Because everyone's invited to experience redemption. Because the gospel is the only thing that can change a life, and the gospel can change any life. And we believe that uh, firmly in who we are. Uh, and so that means like on a Sunday morning, we want this to be a place that anyone can come in, and they can hear the message of the gospel, and they're not going to get that weird look when they walk in, or, or you're not going to hear later like, oh, did you hear that that person that goes to, uh, goes to your church, uh, that they're doing this, or they're doing that? Well, if they're doing this, or they're doing that, and they're not a believer of Christ, why would that surprise me. That's not going to surprise me. Why would they act like a Christian if they're not a Christian? Oh, but they're sitting in your, in your, in your, in your seat. Good. Because everyone's invited to experience redemption. And the hope then is that the gospel is going to change them. And the moment the gospel changes them, then they get to step into the family. And I'm glad they're here. Okay. So this is, this is how you have to, but you have to walk these things out. And you have to figure out, uh, uh, and listen, there's a lot of freedom, I think, in, uh, in, in figuring out, so it's like to what level of engagement and all of that kind of stuff, and, and this matters, and it's important that you pray about it and you think your way through, but we always want to be able to carry both of these mindsets that are not contradictory at the same time. Now, in this uh, plays out, here's, let me give you a little bit, of, uh, some more commentary on this, because I think this is... Um, that in the, in the context uh, of the church, this is how much of a church nerd I am, by the way. Um, when I was 17 years old, I was a, so I was a senior in high school, graduated uh, uh, high school in 04. You know 04? Yeah? Okay. No. I was like, Mary Beth, nice. And there's a wooer in the back. Okay. Um, and so I graduated high school in 04, and uh, I had to write a senior paper on, uh, you know, before you graduated. And I wrote my senior paper on um, the, the future of the American church. Okay, uh, as a senior in high school, and I read all these books, and I was reading these books, and I'm like trying to give like a, you know my very well-informed 17-year-old opinion on what the uh, the future of the American church was going to look like. And during that time, there was this statement that was kind of um, symbolizing the church of that era, and it was this phrase. Some of you, someone's gonna run down your back here. Sure, seeker sensitive. Okay. And this was like this movement in the church. And the movement had started like 10 years prior to that movement, right? And there was this idea, right, in, in, in church, uh, and the idea had kind of come uh, like this, that what if our weekend gatherings could become evangelistic in nature? What if Sunday morning was set up in such a way that unbelievers or unchurched people would want to join into the Sunday morning gathering and could hear the gospel, and that maybe the best way we had of reaching the lost was we would attract lost people to show up on Sunday morning, and we would run service in such a way that called their hearts to repentance and the gospel. And this was like the church movement, and you guys aren't dumb, like you've seen this play out, and this kind of played out itself over the last 10, 20, and 30 years. And so I'm a senior in high school, and I'm writing my paper on how this movement is like going to save the church, and it's the only thing that's going to work, and, uh, and this is the only thing that's getting results right now, and all of this kind of stuff. And so I'm writing this up. And uh, before I, I move on a little bit, you, you might ask the question to yourself, well, well, whose crazy idea was it that the church should be cognizant of unbelievers? in their midst. Paul's. Okay? 
just to clarify, the Apostle Paul, not some Paul, some writer, okay? The Apostle Paul, it was his idea. In fact, if you read through 1 Corinthians, the whole idea in its original context uh, was this concept uh, that Paul writes about that we should always be aware that unbelievers might be in our midst and that we should actually surrender rights or alter behavior based on the understanding that there might be somebody in the gathering that isn't a Christ follower. And so this was a very biblical idea that, um, that, that took place, right? And they got it right from the pages of Scripture. Uh, and then God began to use it to reach people. So you say, well, what happened? Well, at some point along the way, the seeker-sensitive got transitioned into seeker-focused, which got transitioned into seeker-dominated. And what started off as an idea of how do you just reach people for Christ a little bit better um, turned into where the, uh, it was forgotten that the primary function of the church is to equip the saints. And so if somebody asked me, Stephen, uh, is, is redemption seeker sensitive? You know how I'd answer that question? I'd say, as much as Paul and the scriptures say it should be. Now, I know that's kind of like a cop-out answer, but it's also the true answer. Shouldn't every person, shouldn't every church service, as the scriptures instruct, want to be aware and cognizant that there might be people in our midst that haven't yet experienced the gospel? Of course we should. In fact, this should be elevated. The, the, Paul puts this in pretty high importance, right? He uses phrases like, I became all things to all people, right? Like he's showing his heart for the lost. Where does he get that heart for the lost? Jesus. Jesus' heart for the lost. Now, in this then, what, you, what, what the church has to do, I think the church that Jesus came to plant, is has to, to figure out how do you be aware that there are unbelievers, how do we, that there are unbelievers in our midst, that the church is primary for believers, but still then be aware. And the way, and, 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 and understanding how this works itself out and set up is in part how, uh, why our church exists the way that it does and the different things that we do, because we're trying through the leading and the prompting of the Holy Spirit to understand how to walk these two things out. And I would say that is biblical and that is godly. I would also say that there are certain people who in their pride would rather say to the unbeliever, they, don't, they wouldn't say this out loud, but they would say it in their actions, would rather say to the unbeliever, I don't want you here. I would rather have my own experience. And I would say that person is in sin. That person is immature. And that mindset is and, uh, and it's what Paul is correcting in, in, in 1 Corinthians. And so uh, what then does the church that Jesus came to plant do? They walk in humility and they say, okay, Holy Spirit, you lead this as you would desire to lead it. Now, second thing then. Okay, so this is what happens at the beginning. So the first thing we see is the church is for believers. There's all of these implications underneath it. We can't throw out the fact that everyone's invited to experience redemption, right? And, and, but then secondly, say, well, how do you enter into the church? So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. You ever get an email from a company and you're like, how did they get my email? You know, 20% off something, 40% off something, right? Or you're at the cash register and they say, hey, would you like to join our, you know, uh, would you like to join our, our, our reward program, our loyalty program, whatever, whatever. So they ask you for your email and they like won't check you out until you give them your email, right? So you give them your Juno.com email that you haven't checked in 25 years. That's what I do, okay? And, uh, and the moment you give them the email, what's happening? It is being sold and you are going to be added to marketing lists, Right? It, like, it is just happening. And so the moment you pass it on the email, you are being added to the list, right? Now, 
in a, in a similar fashion, when you come to Christ, when there is gospel conviction in your heart, you are now a part of the church. The question after that then is simply, how active are you going to be? You are a part of the church when you say yes to Christ. You're added into it, all right? So you say yes to Christ. You're added into God's church. He's looking out his universal church. He's looking, and he says, how do I know those are mine Because they, who are part of my church? Because they've been changed by the gospel. We talked a couple weeks ago. The Holy Spirit is now implanted upon them. They are now a part of my church. I know that they are. Now the question for each of us becomes, how active am I going to be in the body of Christ? Now we go back to the beginning, and we see this that the first the first 3,000 that were added into the church, uh, it was in part what identified them uh, as, as followers of Christ. They stepped in to the body of Christ, uh, and it was a way of saying like, hey, the same thing that happened to those 120, the same thing that happened to the 12 disciples, it happened to me. Uh, I was dead in my sin. Christ made me alive, and now I'm, I'm with them. I'm with the crazies. That's part of a, like saying, I'm with them. The gospel changed them, and the gospel changed me, and the natural response to that is to now join up together in, uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God. And so the gospel came in, it hit them, it changed them, and they just stepped right in to it. And for them, joining or being added into the church um, was not like a uh, socially beneficial thing to do. Like, uh, the church is not a social club that you join for the perks, because for them, the perks, uh, those original believers, it was joining in, it was some ostracization of, of the Jewish community. For some of them, it was being left out of the Jewish economy. Uh, they were going to be looked at as traitors. Uh, later on, they're going to take on the ire of Rome, right? And, and, and all of this was a result of saying, yeah, I'm now a part of this thing. Now, own time, uh, sometimes people will look and they'll say, uh, and we actually join churches for the benefits that we perceive that are going to be given to us. But you look back at here, and the only benefit was that it's probably going to cost you your life. And so they, they step into it, but they were added into it immediately. It wasn't a choice of whether or not uh, you, you, you join into the church. If you are in Christ, you are in the church. This is why I say the idea of, uh, and you've heard this before, but doctrinally, the idea of being a Christian that's not a part of a church is not scriptural. There's no evidence of it. Why? Because when you say yes to Christ, you enter into the body of Christ. You are now a part of it. The question is simply, how active will you be? Will you play the role that God has played out for you? Now, in that then, right, um, uh, is also the idea of uh, this is in part how God preserves followers of Christ. So last week we looked at this question, how do we save ourselves from this crooked and twisted generation? And part of the way that you and I are saved from a crooked and twisted generation is we're entered into the body of Christ and God like preserves and protects his church and he brings the church together to help save ourselves from a crooked and twisted generation. And so uh, maybe, uh, you know, uh, you, you think I'm so, I'm so lonely. I, I don't have a single friend in the world. That ought not to be so. You've stepped into the church. Behold, friends. You say, well, I'm not experiencing that existence right now. Well, then you have, there's some work that maybe needs to be done or some connections that, that maybe need to be done. But this is what Christ saw when he was like, I'm bringing these people together. Maybe uh, you are thinking, I don't have any family and, uh, and I'm all alone. No, the, the point of the church and that church was that you say yes to Christ and you step into now a family of Christ. And so you look around and you say, these are brothers and these are sisters and these are moms and these are dads and, and these are grandpa, uh, grandparents. And like, if you need a grandparent, Frank will be your grandpa, okay? I'll buy a birthday card, I'll take you out to lunch. 
okay? Because when you step into the church, what, what is happening there then is that uh, you're being added into it, and then these things are being added onto you now that you're in this body. Maybe you have begun to think, uh, we're the only ones left, and you say that to your spouse, or, or you look at somebody else. Maybe you've been out of like this type of church for a while, and you've just been sitting at home, and you're watching things on TV, you're watching the internet, uh, you know, and you're looking out at the world, and it's crazy, and you're going, we're the only ones left, right? And part of being a part of the church is that you get to gather on a frequent basis and every time you do you look around and you go oh no there's people who believe exactly like I believe there's people who believe what I believe they believe the scriptures like I believe them they're pursuing God like I'm pursuing him like I'm not alone like you started to think you were like Elijah and you're like uh, God I'm the only one left and, and God's like no Elijah there's 7,000 more of you you're not alone and part of being a part of the church is showing up every week being encouraged being strengthened being challenged and going I'm not the only one who's pursuing it this way maybe you're a parent a young parent like I am and you got these young kids and you look out and you're going how do we raise these kids in a crooked and twisted generation and then you come in you step into church and you realize, oh, we're not the only one. There's 100 kids going to VBS because there's that many parents that are looking and saying, I want to see my kids be committed to their faith in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And that's church, right? And these are the things that when the church happens, you step, uh, when the church is operating how it's supposed to, and you're saying you get added into it automatically, but then it's just a question of how much are you going to engage? How much are you going to engage in the body of Christ that you've already been added into? Now, these are two things that we learned here in this lesson, and I want to add one more uh, to the end here. So the first thing being this, uh, that, that the church is for believers, okay, although everyone's invited to experience redemption. Secondly, that it's something that we're added into, but then it's a decision of how much we're going to engage in it. The third thing I want to see then is that once you enter into the body of Christ, how then are we supposed to operate? And I want to use a word here that I'll revisit often, I think, throughout this series, and it's just the idea of togetherness. And so I bring us back to first. Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This verse is so good because there's so many different things going on. First off, he's saying to the church of God, so it's the reminder that it's God's church. Then he's saying that is in Corinth, so he's saying, yes, there are specific or local expressions of this. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, the only way to get in is that you've been changed by the gospel, right? You're called to be saints together then. And this is the point I want to end on today, and that is that when we step into the body of, the, uh, of Christ, when we step into to the church, that the spirit or the nature or the culture of what we're then, uh, of what we're in now is a togetherness, a togetherness. See, uh, there's a certain element, right, where I talked about at the beginning, my little definition. I said the church is a group of believers who are united first by a common salvation. Yes, like it is the conviction of the gospel, okay, the common salvation that we all share that brings us to a certain level of unity. Okay, now empowered by a common spirit, okay, so we all have the Holy Spirit who's working in all of us, and Ephesians tells us that, the, that God, like a, like a master chess player, is, is, is lining up his kingdom and his church exactly how he wants it through the Holy Spirit, giving different giftings and aligning certain people to accomplish certain things. But then I would say here, motivated to a common purpose. Motivated to a common purpose. And um, I would say this, that as, the, uh, as you go through this little definition here, that what you see is the togetherness is coming more and more. Because uh, there are different expressions of the body of Christ. 
right? There are probably four to 500 churches just in the Toledo area, right? Uh, and there are other expressions of how this plays out. But as you join more and more into a body of Christ, the togetherness has to come more and more. And so there are certain people that I would look at that say, you know what, I am a believer in Jesus Christ. And I would say, man, you and I, we are together in that, and we are brothers in Christ, and, uh, and I'll pray with you, and I'm going to champion what you're doing. But then there's this other level of people who say, like, I am, I am in Christ, right, uh, and, and now I, uh, and I'm empowered by the Holy Spirit, and I have this gift, and Stephen, you have this gift, and I can look and I say, oh, man, I could see how we could begin, uh, how, how God is using his universal church to accomplish everything, because you have that gift, and I have this gift, and we're working that way, and there's a sense of togetherness. But then... There's another level of togetherness that then unites a, a specific or particular group of people just like this church in Corinth, and it brings them really together, brings them really together for, for a common purpose that Christ has given for that unique body. When I think about people talk about unity in the church all the time and all of that kind of stuff, and we've spent a lot of time talking about, you know, unity in the church from a city perspective and from a national perspective and all of these different things, right? And Paul even addresses this a little bit. There's one group of people, uh, he's like, I, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, in essence, he's like, I'm not particularly excited about everything that's going on there, but they're preaching the gospel, and so I'm going to celebrate it. And that's how Paul, by the way, when he has disagreement with other churches, that was kind of how he just calmed himself down. He's like, hey, they're proclaiming the gospel, and so I'm just going to celebrate it. It's a good attitude and a good approach for us to take as well, right? If the gospel's being preached, then I'm going to celebrate it, not going to say anything bad, going to move on, right, and just celebrate that the gospel is being proclaimed, right? But as a church begins to be formed, and as God takes a local expression of a body, the part of what is supposed to surface in that is a deeper and deeper togetherness. How, how deep does the togetherness get? Look at the first church in Acts chapter 2. Look at this church. I mean, their togetherness was insane. They, they devote, it changed what they devoted themselves to. They devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship, uh, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. It all came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together, together, there's that word, and had all things in common. That was the level of their togetherness. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. I mean, the togetherness was insane, so much to the point where if one person saw another person in need, they would go, oh, I'll just sell something and give it to you you and take care of your need. I mean, what a depth of togetherness. In fact, generosity in the first church had nothing to do with people wanting to be like blessed because they were tithing or anything like that. It had everything to do in this context with the idea that they just saw each other as family and naturally family takes care of family. That's why they were generous. They, they were generous because they thought, oh, you and I, we're family. I would take care of my brother if you were my natural brother in this way. And so you're my spiritual brother, so I'm going to take care of you. And it just came and produced this overwhelming, incredible generosity. Okay? Now, and you just see this and you keep reading it and the togetherness gets deeper and deeper. Now, here's what's really important. Okay? And as we journey through the rest of the series, here's, here's what my aim is going to be. Some of this stuff we look through and we realize it's way easier to um, travel or to spend day by day with people, okay, when everybody worked at home and everybody lived right next to each other, which is the culture that they lived in, Right? And so, you, you know, it'd be like looking over your neighbor and be like, hey, uh, you know, you became a Christian, I became a Christian, we live next to each other, you want to have dinner tonight? Great, cool, right? Easy, right? Or they walk, the furthest they'd walk is like 400 meters, right? We have Tom who lives in Oak Harbor and some people in our church who live in Adrian, okay? 
Like, we have people from all over our church, and it would be crazy if we looked and say, oh, well, they're not an accident church because Tom's not driving to Adrian every week to have dinner. And sometimes people get so idealistic in their nature that they start putting these expectations out and they start saying these things, and where they don't see these things, they go, oh, this must not be an accident church. And so some of this stuff we have to understand. How does togetherness play itself out in a new way? When they would sell their possessions, they would literally put the money in, uh, you, you know, like they had like a treasure desk that somebody would watch over. Okay, we have bank accounts now, way easier. And we, 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 there, there's different ways that all of this stuff plays out. It doesn't negate the spirit of Acts 2, even though it plays itself out a little bit differently. And learning togetherness then as a church family is figuring out uh, if I'm going to be together here, and this is why I say when I say, um, if you're looking for a church, we want to help you figure out if it's this one. And part of what I'm saying is is this. On one hand, I'm saying, because uh, if you do decide that this is the right church for you, I want to let you know the togetherness here is awesome. It's better than like any togetherness that I have experienced uh, in my life. Like, it is a beautiful togetherness that exists. The second reason I'm saying it is because as a pastor, I have a responsibility to protect the togetherness. And so part of the conversation is realizing some things might pop up and you might not want to be together with us. And uh, I might love you, but you might need to be together with somebody else's together because then you'll be really together with them and we'll be able to remain together. You follow me? Because here's what happens sometimes. Some people, they had a togetherness that they really enjoyed. And, uh, and then for whatever reason, they were called out of that togetherness. And then they want to jump into our togetherness. But they want to bring their togetherness with them and make it the, this togetherness. But that's not our togetherness. And your togetherness is actually going to ruin our togetherness. And I'm not going to let you do that. Okay. And the things that actually fire me up the most are when people try to bring their togetherness and force it into the togetherness that we have. It fires me up. Why? Because it's usually done under the guise of being spiritual. And I won't go straight to saying it's demonic, but it's definitely immature. Because what they're saying is, unless you do togetherness like I do togetherness, your togetherness isn't real. And I will tell you, every single person who texted me on Thursday morning about how God is moving in their life and Facebooked me and sent me emails, it is very real what God is doing here. And it is my job to protect that. And here's the good thing. I don't have to protect it on myself. That's why God gave us elders. And that's why I'd say, we always talk about the unity of our togetherness will be a direct strength of our church. And that's why whenever there is any small breakdown of togetherness amongst the three of us, like, I can't sleep at night. Because I know that's the enemy's, he's looking for a way. He's looking for a way. He's, and, and we're not going to give it to him, right? And then this plays out over and over. This plays out in the way that we do our leadership structure. That's why we're an elder-led church. It's the way we do our staff. That's why we're a staff-operated church. It's our ministry structure. Like, sometimes people come in, they're like, hey, yeah, I like what you have going on. But you could also do this. Get your butt out of here. Okay? Why? We do things the way we do it because we feel like this is the way God has called us to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it this way. 
And if God is going to change us, here's what I've noticed, that when God wants to make a change in our church, this is not what he does. He doesn't bring somebody else in. This, I've, just, I've watched this for six years. He doesn't bring somebody else in. He says, you should do it this way. What he does is he begins to start changing everybody who has already been together. He changes from the inside. Why? Because he's a God of unity. And that's how he does it. And so he begins to change us. And so, yes, our body looks different now than it did two years ago or four years ago or six years ago. But, but it's because that God worked something in, in us as elders or God something work, worked in something us as a staff or God worked something out different in all of us as a congregation. And he does it together because God cares about togetherness. Okay? He cares about togetherness. And listen, I don't like saying this from stage, okay? Because like, it's not like a fun thing to say. But if we keep journeying through this service or series and you go, oh, I'm not together. Then go be together somewhere where you're going to be together. And I'll love you. And I'll miss you. But I'm called to be together here with the people that God has called us to be together with, to be together in the way that God has called us to be together. And we'll figure that out together. That one was for comedic effect, so thank you for laughing. Okay. Make sense? I think so. Now, why? Because when church is church as it is supposed to be, and Acts 2 gives us a picture of it, there is nothing better. There is nothing better in life. This is why as a 17-year-old, when I started seeing glimpses of what church could be, I wrote my senior paper on it. It's why as a 19-year-old, I gave up going to school and came back home to work at a church. It's why uh, at 28 or 30, when I wanted to quit uh, and, and, and God wouldn't let me and he used people to make sure that that wouldn't happen because I have just seen that when church is church the way that it's supposed to be, there is nothing like it and that is what we want to be here. And we want to see God continue to form that. And I love it when you guys share with me what God is doing in your and what he is doing in your life. And we're going to keep going after it because we realize there is no perfect church, but any church that is submitted to the Holy Spirit can keep moving in the direction that God wants it to move. And my hope is that throughout this series, what God will do is continue to reveal to us what being together here looks like so that we can keep walking out the beauty of what he has started, the beauty of what he wants to continue, and that God, as he wants to, will add other people into it who want to be together with us. So I know this morning was a bit of an introduction, um, but I feel like we needed to cover this uh, in order to, to do this series effectively. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you have brought together. And Father, what you have brought together, let no man or not the enemy divide. And so, Father, I pray that nothing would get in to break our togetherness. I pray that you would preserve it at every level. Preserve it at our elder level. Preserve it at our staff level. Preserve it at our uh, people who are, are, are leading ministries and, and volunteering. Preserve it on our weekend service. Preserve it uh, in every part of this church, Lord, because you desire it. And, Father, may there be great strength in this togetherness, submitted to the Holy Spirit, acknowledging that this is your church, and Father, thank you for giving your believers, those who have been changed by your gospel, such a beautiful thing like the church that we can now operate in to challenge each other, love each other, serve each other, and grow up in Christ together. We are grateful for this gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you'd like to take a next step with Redemption Church, visit us online at experienceredemption.com slash connect card. 
You can also give online to support the work of Redemption Church. To explore your giving options, visit experienceredemption.com slash give online. We hope that the message you heard today encouraged you. See you again soon.